Hi, this is Tim Rood, Head of Government and Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest segment of On the Hill. I am very fortunate to have two folks with us. This is a new format. We've got uh, Blake Hastings. Blake is the Senior Vice President of Corporate Strategy and the Chief Economist of SWBC. Blake, I'll give you a proper introduction in a minute, but I first want to say uh, thanks for joining us and welcome. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Oh, you bet. Second one, oh boy, Ed Delgado. Ed, um, old friend, he had a pretty remarkable career with Ringling Brothers before the mortgage industry. I'm kidding, Ed. Ed, obviously, has one of the most distinguished backgrounds that we'll get into in a minute, but I first wanted to at least welcome you, Ed. We'll do you a proper introduction in a second. Thanks for joining us. Tim, there's no place I'd rather be. I have no doubt, my friend. No. <laughs> All right, Blake. Blake, let's bring us home a little bit. So you, as I mentioned, are the SVP of corporate strategy at SWBC. That your role is really to, to grim the company successfully by providing course leadership for things like strategic planning, corporate development. I know that you're in the business of really assessing sort of the direction and direction assessment, evaluation, if you will, of anything to do with risk and risk management at the company. Uh, before that, I understand that you were at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, which is for 14 years. That's a that's a heck of a feather in your cap. And you were actually the SVP overseeing San Antonio also as part of the Federal Reserve. So last but not least, since I certainly am in DC, I see that you were a graduate, both undergrad and graduate degree from GW, George Washington. So welcome. Thanks, Blake. Thank you. All right, Ed, that might be a tough act to follow. But we'll give it a whirl. So you, like me, are a 30-year veteran in the industry. God bless you. Have been with, well, executive at Wells Fargo, Freddie Mac, JP Morgan Chase. Uh, you've been most recently the president of and CEO of Five Star. I believe you're still the chairman of that, which is a huge trade and media group supporting the mortgage industry. And you have headed up the National Mortgage Servicing Association, which I have been a member of. It has been a fantastic group of the top servicers and their executives. I think uh, one of the really interesting things, certainly about Ed, as he's hosted discussions on housing and financial markets with a variety of you know global leaders and industry leaders, people like Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Ben Carson, you name it. I'm sure there's some good stories in there as well. But most recently, Ed has been the co-founder and managing director of Lord's Policy Advisors uh, with a good friend of mine, Marcel Breyer. Uh, they made colleague of mine, and you guys are doing a lot of work on the advisory side and helping companies manage through sort of the regulatory and policy environment, which is fluid. So, Ed, thanks for joining. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. So, gents, I read through this report that you prepared recently. I, I believe it was entitled Mastering of a Market Maze. So, this, this was more of that macroeconomic paper that explores the opportunities and challenges for the housing and mortgage markets, more or less from an economic standpoint, which, by the way, anybody gets a chance to read it, read it. We'll post a link to it, of course, in the um, in the podcast. But so this is to you, Blake. You're the closest thing we've got to an economist of the group. What are some of the key economic indicators that you're watching really in the regards to the health of the mortgage and real estate markets? Maybe some of, you know, maybe what are some of the takeaways that you want people to get from this research paper? 
Yeah, I think when it comes to the the housing industry more generally, the, the the indicators I'm looking at, of course, are jobs. I'm watching that. That's obviously been a strong suit for the U.S. economy over the last number of months. Although there are beginning to show some signs of weakness, if you will, we're starting to see labor demand cool off, which was much needed because you know that was pushing wages up, and that's part of why inflation is now starting to come down. And then, and then, of course, looking at delinquencies and, and making you know making sure those you know keeping an eye on those to see if there's are becoming a stress point. They are not as of yet. Mortgage delinquencies are still very very low, although they are ticking up nowhere near their pre-pandemic levels. And then just sort of more fundamentally looking at the supply and demand of of housing, both nationally and in, in key markets. And pretty much at this point, looks as though we had our bottom in terms of home prices not only across the U.S., but across most of the major metro areas, they appeared to have bottomed a couple of months ago and are now moving back upwards. And it's really a function of supply and demand both coming down together at the same time. So yes, we know demand has been sort of stymied by higher interest rates in particular, but supply of housing, particularly existing homes, has also uh, been curtailed because everybody that's sitting on top of a two and a half, three percent mortgage that they refinanced during the pandemic can't afford to move. When they've got sort of golden handcuffs, you know, who wants to move and get a 6.9% mortgage when you're in a place with a two and a half percent mortgage? And so that has sort of kept the supply side in check and kind of put a floor on prices. And now it looks like uh, things are, are sort of turning back up. Even though new demand is still somewhat soft, it does also look like it's bottom. So I, I look at new mortgage applications and things like that as well. But overall, I, I think we're forming a bottom in the housing market, uh, a little ahead of the economy, uh, which is a little bit unusual. But I think overall, it's looking pretty positive for, for the industry. I think the worst is behind us. Yeah, no, thank you for that, Blake. And it, it's an interesting time. You know, usually it takes about six months, maybe a year for the market to kind of get acclimated to higher interest rates. And that seems pretty consistent with this pattern. Now, mind you that historically speaking, you, I don't think ever, uh, we're talking about this in the context of a market where the values had gone up 30 or 40%, you know, short amount of time. So the combination of those two things might be, appears to be quite unique, but I, you know, from from your mouth to God's ear, I certainly hope it's a bottom. I think interest rates seem to be cooperating. They're seeing compression from the, the spread between the 10-year T-bills and the and the 30-year fixed market, which has got a lot of lot of fluff in it. So as that thing starts to flatten out, you know, you could see as much as a, a percent drop in rates. And I think 100, 125 basis points extra in that spread you're referring to right now from what's normal. Yeah, yeah. And that would be obviously. A game changer, close to 6%, it's like every sign is go, go, go. Closer to 7%, it's go conditionally. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. With caution. Uh, thank you. With caution is better. So, all right. And so, you know, as we were talking, obviously, Blake on the economy side, and I could see, you know, from a qualitative perspective that you could certainly talk to some of these issues. And you've been in this business, as I mentioned, a long time like me. Can you think of you know maybe an experience or an experiences that you've had to navigate through a, a similarly challenging environment, and you know, what was happening then, and I guess what did you do? This is a different environment for servicers, and that, that's where I'll focus my comments on. I think that at the risk of being somewhat critical, they've been 
lulled into a state of complacency, right? There is no material default to speak of. Foreclosures are at or near record lows. We're still not quite back to where we were pre-pandemic. Now, pre-pandemic was exceptionally low. So what happens is you you start to take your eye off the ball. It's like playing a baseball game when you're up 14 to nothing and the, the pitcher on the winning team, they say, well, it's really hard to keep focus. I don't know why, but they, they seem to lose track of what's important. So investing in technology and human capital and making sure that you're prepared seems to have, have taken a bit of a backseat for many. So I, I think that conditions right now are are favorable to low delinquency. And Blake and I have talked extensively about where we are in terms of supply. There's just no way the market's cooling off to where it was back in 2010, 11. But I do, you know, I, I think we're in a solid place. I, I think that companies are, you know, managing through this period and everybody came out relatively unscathed from the pandemic. So, yeah, where interest rates are going, I don't know if I'm 100% in agreement with you and Blake. I, I was reading some stuff today that suggests that there could be another move by the Fed in late Q3, Q4, in which, you know, what, is it 25 bips? Is it 50? Is it 75? I don't know. Interest rates continue to go up. That's going to be somewhat problematic. And the other thing that we never really talk about is, and, and Blake mentioned those golden handcuffs. You know, if you're sitting on a 3% mortgage and you run into any trouble, oh, let's just modify it. You can't modify a 3% mortgage. So there's some built-in risk right now in the mortgage market that I think we'll, we'll have to wait and see where it presents itself down the road. But right now it is very calm and very smooth sailing. Yeah, you mentioned it all into complacency. Well, I'm not convinced that policymakers or lawmakers are lulled into complacency. I think they're actually being pretty active and that homeownership and the mortgage industry generally are higher on the priority list than other administrations. So I think that is well, a good thing. Hey, Tim, it's easy sport, right? Let, let's, keep, let's keep punching at the banks because it's fun and it produces a lot of money and a lot of uh, headlines. So that's been going on for well over a decade now. So I, I yeah, that's not going to let up. Yeah. Why rob the banks or sue them? Because that's where the money is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, so I, I, I totally agree with all that. I think what, what struck me when you said that is, and I'm trying to tie that back to the policymakers, is it, it feels at times in their, in their desire to do things that are magnanimous, enlightened, things like loss mitigation policies, foreclosure prevention policies, I love the intent. I love everything that they're thinking. What worries me is a lot of times that we, obviously, history has taught us a lot, but we seem to be using a lot of the same logic, wisdom, even programs, but we're packaging them in new bottles, right? It's like old wine in, in new bottles, where forbearances, to me, is code for equity stripping, you know, modifications or you know, other loss mitigation initiatives where there is no documentation, simply attestations, all right, that feels like a no-doc to me. So while I don't think that there are clear signs, this is to you or Blake, I don't think there are clear economic signs that would signal impending doom for the housing market. I think that people are getting all too comfortable with the notion that there will never be 
another widespread series of defaults in the mortgage industry. So that's what's driving a lot of the kind of enlightened, magnanimous sort of policy making. I don't know if either of you have a reaction to that. I'll go first. I mean, those are famous last words, right? Never or this time's different. We said that to ourselves in 2006 and seven. In fact, that's right when I joined the Fed and there was a big discussion going on whether this mortgage thing was going to be a big deal or not. Obviously, it turned out to be a, a huge deal in 2007 and eight and nine. I do believe though you're right in that there's no impending doom for the housing sector that I can see. And my, my biggest reason for that is the job market is so strong. Employers are having such a rough time finding and keeping workers that even though I believe we are headed for a mild recession, I believe it will be mild because of the strength of the labor market, because employers are going to be loath to let people go. There's some surveys out there the Fed has done recently that show employers who are currently overstaffed, but still plan to keep the workers they have is, is actually going up. And so all with all that together, I think we're going to have a job full recession, which is kind of the opposite of the jobless recoveries we've seen in the past, where it took a while for the labor markets to recover, you know, long after the economy got going and, and got, you know, got, you know, sort of it got in gear again. So I think this will be the opposite of a jobless recovery. I think it'll be a job full recession where you just don't see the unemployment rate get above 5%, which typically we see in a recession, it goes to 7 or 10%. And that creates a negative feedback loop, right? Where people lose their jobs, they start defaulting on their on their loans, that puts more pressure on the financial system to tighten further, and you know, and it, it becomes a hard cycle to kind of break. I think this time it's not going to kick in, a because people are going to continue to mostly have jobs, and b the financial sector is going into this with pretty strong balance sheets. I know there's questions about the regional banks, but they're not huge mortgage lenders, and so when you look at that, I just don't see a whole lot of stress built up in the financial system like what we saw in 2007 and eight. I, you know, they, the, the asset ratios are strong. Uh, the loan loss reserves are are very strong. Reserve ratios are are strong, and so put it all together, I, I just don't see the impending doom. I agree with your your premise there. Ed, what do you think? I mean, how much is the same? How much has changed? What's your reaction to all this? It's all over. Everybody should sell their houses. <laughs> Ed just got his real estate license. Yeah. So, <laughs> look, it, here's the thing, right? I think that there are certain factors. First of all, it, I don't think you can replicate what happened during the 2008 housing crisis, right? You had a, a, a tremendous amount of irresponsible lending. You had a very challenging market on the employment side. It was just a confluence of events and circumstance that created a, a, you know, a virtual collapse of the housing market. I think there are sufficient controls and regulations and compliance rules that will prevent that from happening, just like those safety walls on the Titanic, right? What I do think is important is you start to look at other factors outside of housing, right? Because it's easy to keep stating, look, it's it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. We don't have foreclosures. 90-day SDQs, seriously low. We don't, we don't have to worry about that. Transition rates are right where they need to be from one DQ subset to the next. Everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, right? Where are we going with credit cards? Well, unsecured debt is on the rise rapidly. What about debt uh, expansion? Well, that's that's increasing. Where are we going with the commercial real estate sector? Well, that's collapsing. So you have to keep an eye on these other variables as leading indicators or markers to where the housing sector is going to end up going at some point, right? So I think that that's where we have to be somewhat cautious in, in saying, okay, 
what happens when supply reaches five months? What's going to happen to home prices? And you could see a, not, not just a, a rapid deceleration, but you can have a decrease in home values in some markets. I'm watching Illinois. I'm watching Florida, for example. Are they in a state of collapse? No, of course not. Are they starting to wobble just a little bit outside of its intended orbit in terms of performance? So today, I'm not bringing any alarm. I'm, I'm more concerned about where we're going to be a year from now. I think yeah, Blake is spot on in his commentary about having a job full recession. Things change. There's always events that you can't foresee. I think it's short-sighted to say everything is, that we see today will be the way it is tomorrow. We don't know where we're going in a couple different areas with the economy. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens a year from now. So Blake, I, I know it's Tim's show and he's asking all the questions, but Goldman Sachs just pushed out the recession to sometime in 24. The longer they keep punting the can down the road, does that create more tension of people a little bit more cautious. Tim, you can leave your podcast. I'll just take it from here. No, old old habits die hard, Ed. I'm um, I'm at the feet of the master right now. So please, I'll start recording now. Thank you. Yeah. So Blake, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I saw Goldman's report. They the, the crux of their report was they were a little dismissive of the yield curve inversion, which again, I went through two yield curve curve inversions while I was at the Fed both times. People were like, well, this time is different. It's not going to be the trigger, and guess what happened? Both times, recessions eventually did mature. It takes about 12 to 18 months from the time of the, the, the yield curve inverts. And so that that was really the crux, but they were kind of pushing it out, saying the yield curve inversion is different this time because of where rates started and what have you. I think at the end of the day, the trigger for the yield curve tightening the economy or slowing the economy down is, is, is eventually it, it affects net interest margins for financial institutions, right? Eventually, the cost of funds for them goes up at a higher level than than they're lending it out at, or at least it goes up more rapidly. And so that puts a squeeze on margins, which forces them to pull back on lending and be more you know prudent with their lending. And you're starting to see that. I mean, all the senior loan officer surveys the Fed has done over the last few quarters have shown considerable tightening across all the credit spectrum, not just mortgages. And the forecast for, for financial institutions, they will continue to do that tightening through the third quarter. Eventually, that's going to slow the economy enough down to create a recession. And that's why the power of the, the, the yield curve has been so predictive. That was one of the things I, I really was taught in my years at the Fed is do not ignore the yield curve. When it inverts, it matters. Uh, that's a little wonky and techy, but bottom line is whether it's third quarter or fourth quarter, I think it is coming. I think the more important question is not whether we're going to have a recession. It's really how long will it last? How deep will it be? And in both of those cases, I think it'll be shorter and, and shallower for the reasons I mentioned before. But also, the one thing that I think is going to happen this time is this will not be felt evenly across the entire country. One of the fascinating things in looking at the recovery from the pandemic is how different the job recovery has been state by state. Uh, it's actually a chart that we put in the in the presentation that you were referring to, Tim. And I actually think you know states like Florida, Texas. Nevada, Idaho, Arizona, you know, the, the Carolinas that have in Tennessee that have seen a lot of net in migration in, they're probably going to avoid recession altogether. They'll slow down, but they may not actually recess. Whereas other states, you know, particularly states that have lost a lot of workers like California and other parts of the other country may feel the recession a little bit more so. So I think that's the more interesting thing. And as we look at things like the mortgage and housing industry, 
I think the experience is going to be varied across the country. And so I think this is one of those recessions where we can't cast a broad brush across the whole U.S. economy. We're really going to have to look at some regional variation because it's going to be a weaker recession and it's just not going to be felt the same across the country. I buy all of that. I would say just in, in summary, which is probably elegant in its brevity, but yeah, I think you're, I think you're pretty spot on. I, I don't, one question I have when you mentioned tight credit, I've heard this reference over and over again, when it comes to the mortgage industry, I kind of struggle to say, I mean, I understand that there'll be less demand for credit, which is slightly different than tighter credit, but God knows any originator on the planet yeah. is certainly looking for more business. Yeah. Uh, now, and Tim, you're making a great point. In fact, when you look at where the credit tightening is happening, the mortgage industry, there's some tightening that's happened, but that's not where the real tightening is occurring. It's occurring in commercial and, and development, you know, land development loans. It's it's in you know construction. It's in CNI loans. It's in other commercial loans, and to a lesser extent in credit card and and some other things. And so, yeah, for example, at SWBC, we're in the multifamily real estate development business here in Texas, and we can't get the financing we could get nine months ago uh, because financial institutions have just tightened to the point where even though we have the liquidity to make deals work and the economics are there, the interest rates are too high and, and the loan to value ratios are, are too high as well for it to make financial sense for us. And so we're we're slowing down the spigot for you know multifamily development. And that's sort of the overall design of the Fed, right? And raising interest rates, but you're really seeing it less so in, in the mortgage space and more in other forms of consumer lending and commercial lending is where you're really seeing the tightening. And that ultimately has a macroeconomic effect. So Ed, sorry to lead you out of this for a second, but I, I want to follow on this theme a little bit. So one of the issues I was looking at this weekend uh, was consumer spending. So you talk about consumer spending and everyone heralds that the, the quick response to the pandemic, the stimulus checks, the ability to forbear payments on a variety of different assets, uh, extended unemployment. And you know, you golf clap and you're like, okay, Sounds good. You're like, damn, how much money was that actually? So I looked up this weekend, but what is attributed to, or what did they, I think the Fed actually targeted as, what what was the maximum amount? I think it was June of 2021 in terms of excess savings. That two people one trillion dollars. Yep. Yeah, I think it was two grand a person or two grand a yep. household or something like that, which to me- And that 2.1 trillion is now down to 533 billion. So it's 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 basically a quarter of what it was at the peak. So people are running out of that powder. It feels like the the powder was a bit of an illusionary, or at least the way they're tracking it. Because if you're telling me that we're celebrating and that the whole stagnant economy, goods economy, and then later the services economy, all blossomed because everybody had an extra two grand to spend fifty bucks a month over three years, doesn't pencil out to me. But what does pencil out? are things like the wealth effect of homeowners. So if I just felt like my home equity just increased 30 or 40%, I don't care if I got a home equity, I don't care if I got a credit card, Don tootin', I'm gonna find a way to spend more money, five to 10 cents of every dollar from what I recall is what people tend to do with that new wealth. Yeah, in fact, you saw home equity lending take off in 2022 because of all that newfound equity you're talking about. But guess what? That's rolled over now and it's been softening for the last six months. That credit card, if you will, has been tapped out. 
And credit card spending is also showing signs of maxing out because most lenders are not increasing credit card limits right now. So that's tapping out. And of course, the savings you alluded to before is down 75% from its peak. So put it all together, the consumer's kind of running out of that powder because inflation's been outstripping their wages up until the last month or two. We finally start to see wages now are, are ahead of inflation. But put it all together, you and the number I like to look at is real retail sales adjusted for inflation, and they've been negative for most of this year. Um, and that's, you know, the consumer is two-thirds of the U.S. economy. So that headwind has been mounting now for a while, to your point, and that is one of the reasons why I think we're headed for a mild recession. Yeah, and I think you're crystallizing my point in that you're introducing a lot of other variables outside of the housing sector that suggests that there is some potential risk down the road, right? Um, and that's where we, we've all seen this playbook before in terms of, well, we've kind of wrung out home equity from the marketplace and now we'll just lean a little bit more on our credit cards and we'll see what happens there. And maybe we we take that trip. If you look at international travel, it's through the roof right now. People are spending money. Life is good. So that fairy tale eventually comes to an end. And if there is a disruption, even a shallow recession, and the market cools, which it will, invariably supply will go up and prices will start to be calibrated in response so that people can quickly tap into what remains of their equity. It starts a bit of a free fall. It doesn't mean you're going to crash to earth. It just means that things will be materially different than they are today and the good times will come to an end for the market. It's not going to be a catastrophe. That's the question we're always asked at mortgage policy advisors are, are you know, is there going to be another uh, housing bubble 2.0? No, I agree. There are going to be regional setbacks in markets that probably are not going to be as responsive to changes in the economy as, as others will be. A lot of that has to do with migration. Agree, agree, agree. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to see a new cycle. And that's what the housing market is built on. There, There's just new cycles that come and go where it happened to be at the uh towards the tail end of a really strong cycle but uh, there will be a shift you know it's interesting you said that ed and thanks to that additional caller it is that these these cycles obviously come and go but the government is supposed to be counter cyclical right so let the private sector do what they got to do supposed um, to be just emphasize it's supposed to be <laughs> the textbooks that i read many moons ago that that was my sense right the Supposed to be counter cyclical, step in when the private market steps back, keep an orderly market, make sure that there's money available in every market every day, blah, blah, blah. But now the dang thing, government is about 85% of new originations, probably close to that on the servicing side. So they are anything but counter cyclical. They are darn pro cyclical. When you throw in, of course, quantitative easing, and obviously the reverse is also true monetary policy can giveth and taketh away. So maybe Blake, if you could spend a minute and obviously Ed, if you want to jump in on, you know, how the monetary policy has impacted booms and busts in these markets and, you know, what might yeah. happen with them next and then the implications of that. So, you know, when I was at the Fed, we talked a lot about pro-cyclicality pro -cyclicality versus counter-cyclical. And then there's two points I would make to keep in mind. And the Fed obviously on monetary policy is applying the brakes hard right now. They're starting to come off of just a little bit. The pattern for the Fed is historically been, they've been a year late 
fighting inflation. And once again, I, you could argue easily they were at least a year late this time around. And because of that, had to had to hit the brakes a lot harder. And they usually overshoot in applying the brakes. And, and that usually causes some sort of a, of a downturn, recession, what have you. And I would argue we're right staring in the face of, of that again. I think the latest inflation data to me tells me that where they're at right now at five to five and a quarter is enough. Remember, monetary policy works with a long and variable lag. It takes 12 to 18 months sometimes for it to fully kick in. I think two more rate hikes, which seems to be sort of what's baked in right now, at least in terms of what the Fed is saying, I don't know that they're necessary. And because of that, I think they're going to slow the economy down more than they need to, which again is another reason why I think we're going to have a recession. I think the Fed has committed itself almost to this next rate hike and maybe another one later in the fall. Um, and because of that, you know, I, I you know, when and headline inflation is now at three, you know, yes, core inflation is still up there, but it takes a while for it to turn. I think they're going to, yeah, they're going to overdo it here. The other part that that Fed and other regulator other regulators often do is they tend to be pro-cyclical with regulatory response. And we've seen this over and over again where when things are bad, regulators come in and they they really crunch down and and tighten the the credit markets even further through regulation, thus exacerbating the downturn and they do the opposite on the upswing. And so I think not only from a monetary policy perspective, but also also from a regulatory perspective, you know, we're looking at that again. And and you may not be seeing it in the housing space so much, but you're absolutely seeing it emerge in the commercial real estate space, right? You're starting to see regulators are really tightening on the financial institutions and that's bearing out. It you cannot get credit for most types of commercial real estate that's reasonable right now. And so this commercial real estate episode that we're in right now, the lack of credit for some of these properties uh, is just going to further exacerbate the stress and strain, I think. And so I think there's a, there's absolutely a pro-cyclicality emerging here as much from the regulatory side as monetary. Good feedback. Ed, anything you want to add to that? Nope. I only add things when I disagree, right? So I, I think Blake covered it well, and, and we are completely in agreement on that point. So basically, anytime I say something is when, okay, yes. you disagree. No, no, no. Well, why don't we take it down to a slow dance? I was going to jump into something even more arcane, but I, I thought we could slow it down a minute. So one of the things that I think has been really interesting about you, and I know others as well, I had the same opinion, which is, you know, other than being a fantastic and tremendous professional and, and friend and human being, you know, you certainly interviewed some of the most memorable, like I said, leaders of the country, leaders of the industry. Well, which one was the most memorable and why? I think I've probably seen all of them, but which one? That's a really good question. I like, uh, I like sharing a, a story that people didn't see. I think that the most frightening interview I ever did was with George W. Bush. We had a meeting just before we took stage, and I said, Mr. President, I'd like to ask you several questions related to the housing market, and in particular, the housing crisis when you were in the White House. I'm going to ask you questions about whether or not there was a plan B. It had HAMP failed. What was your position on buying back toxic assets and how are you going to work with Secretary Paulson? And I think the audience will 
be intrigued by your commentary on how close we came to a global depression, economic depression. And I'm just dropping all the, the I call them the Blake buzzwords on him. He's looking at me and he's saying, I'm, I'm not going to answer any of those questions. And I said, I'm sorry, sir. And he said, no. Mm -mm. Did you get the check, sir? No, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. He, he said, uh, I'm, uh, people don't want to know about that. They, they want to know about what life is like in the White House. And I'm, I'm looking at him like, no, they don't. So it, it wasn't a disagreement. It was just like, okay, I have my prepared questions. They've been approved. We take the stage. And the first question I ask him out of the gate is, was there a plan B? Had the treasury failed to stem the tide of foreclosures? And if so, can you please describe it to us? And he looks at me and I can see he's tense and he says, no. <laughs> and there's total silence. Did you pivot to Nancy at that point? It, and I didn't know what to do. And then he gave me like a pretty dirty look. Like, what are you doing? I just told you I'm not going to answer those questions. And I said, there was nothing. And he said, no, he cut me off. And I was like, how much money did the United States contribute to Africa for AIDS prevention? And he goes, that's a great question, Ed. Let's talk about that for a moment. And he went for 10 minutes straight on his administration. So what I've learned over the course of time, and something similar happened with Bill Clinton on um, debt relief. We just had, if, if there was no agreement, there was no conversation. And I think when you're you're in the you're on a stage in front of a lot of people. There's not a lot you can do to change somebody's answer at that point. You're just kind of at their mercy. So that's what happened. And then one, one other uh, time we were meeting, was leaving this stage and I, he's, you have no idea how strong he is physically. We're exiting the stage and the secret services are in front of him and the house lights go down and I'm behind him and he turns and throws a playful punch dead center to my chest and i felt my shoulders arch forward he goes that was fun wasn't it and i was like yes sir mr president because <laughs> i didn't see, when you don't see it coming but he's a great guy he was a uh, really 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 a uh, uh, i think he, he doesn't get enough credit for some of the things he, he and his administration did during the crisis to stop the collapse um it was, it's fascinating time in my career I have to tell you a funny story that I got secondhand from a, a good mutual friend of ours, while I would keep nameless, yeah. uh, who had worked with the, the president. And at the at the the election where you know, at the end of his second term, obviously he was he was done, and uh, Obama was taking the uh, was the new president. Anyway, he goes upstairs to his suite, Bush, that is H W or W Bush. Everyone in the room was kind of somber. I mean, obviously you knew what the outcome was going to be, but the party's over, right? So, so they're all sitting around, shoulders slumped, head down. President Bush comes up as legend has it, and he goes, thank effing God it's over. <laughs> Which is probably what I would do. Yeah. Thank God. All right, well, guys, this is great. I wanted to give you an opportunity. Like if there's something, a theme that you're trying to get across to your clients, there's a theme issues that you're trying to get across to internal or external clients about this market and what's to come laid on us. If there isn't anything else, then we'll, we'll call it a wrap. Blake, I'll let you go first. I, I was just trying to say you could go first, but I'll, I'll get it out of the way. Look, I'm very fortunate to, uh, to maintain a role with uh, five star. It's a great organization. 
They have their big conference coming up in September. If you haven't, please register. As Tim pointed out, there are a lot of transformative leaders in attendance, including many of the the top lenders and servicers in the U.S. Mortgage policy advisors, we're, we're entering our third year. Very, very fortunate to work with Marcel Breyer, who Tim mentioned at the start of this podcast. He's, uh, he's just a gifted and talented man. And we love what we do. We provide advisory services to organizations in terms of strategic placement and position in the marketplace, preparedness. We've helped a lot of folks uh, kind of navigate the complexity of the servicing market. And uh, you can check us out at our, our website. Tim, I'm sure you guys will post it, so I won't do a gratuitous plug. But yeah, we love working in this industry. Marcel and I combined our, our well over uh, 55 years of experience, so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, I, and Tim, I, I think I've said this to you for years. I, I think you are probably one of the most dynamic uh, speakers I've ever had the privilege of working with. You are in high demand in the mortgage industry for your commentary, your insights, your feedback. You distill the complexity of the market and, and make it digestible for so many different people. And I love the work you do and honored to be on your podcast. It's, it's been fun for me. Uh, you read it just like I wrote it, Ed. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, and you guys do great work. It's a shameless plug, but I've heard from our clients too that you guys are doing good things. So thank you for all that and all you've been doing it. Uh, Blake, anything you want to add? Yeah. Yes. There's a couple of themes that I'm really, because I do a lot of presentations for our clients and we, you know, we're in 14 different businesses, but the two largest, uh, we, we do a lot of servicing to credit unions and financial institutions, a lot of, uh, you know, lender placed insurance, things of that nature, collections, you know, and so I'm cautioning a lot of our credit unions, you know, just be mindful, particularly of the used auto space and and the delinquencies picking up in the auto space and, and, you know, have the risk management tools in place, the collections practices in place. We're going to see continued buildup of negative equity there because used car prices are coming back down to earth or reverting to the mean as, as it were, it's just going to take a while. But at the same time, I'm telling them this is a chance to go for market share because some of the weaker financial institutions, particularly in the, in the auto lending space, you know, may, may be vulnerable or have weak balance sheets and there may be opportunities for mergers there and same thing in our mortgage business we're we're a huge mortgage banking operation we're just about in all 50 states with our our mortgage banking operation and we're looking for opportunities to pick up market share right now while weaker balance sheet you know people are getting out or people who are just you know at the end of their careers don't want to go through another cycle so you know these are these opportunities where things get a little bit chaotic or uh, stressed uh, or, or opportunities to grow your market share, grow your business. And so that's really the theme I'm trying to get across, you know, manage the risk, be, be prudent, watch loan to value ratios, all those things, collections and, and what have you. But at the same time, be, be keeping your head up for the opportunities because they're the cheapest right now or will be over the next six months. And, and that's when you want to have your, your, your cash dry and, and ready to go. And so that's, I think the big theme that I'm, I'm encouraging people, this is not going to be a devastating cycle, but there will be opportunity. Yeah. No, I, I agree with a lot of that. You know, it's kind of like, what, what was the Tom Cruise movie, uh, Days of Thunder? You know, you yeah. floor it through the smoke, right? So you see smoke, everybody, do you slow down? Hell no, man, you smash it and go for it. I think that's uh, a lot of what we're seeing now in the mortgage market. And look, the reason I wanted to change kind of the theme of the podcast a little bit from DC stuff to real actors, 
in the age in the market is because this is a nasty market, and most people haven't had the experiences that we've had to live through, you know, the ups and the downs over three decades. So we're probably a little more comfortable with this with the doldrums of this market because we know that they end. But others who've been there for say twenty years, kind of dating myself, uh, you know, they haven't had that same sort of experience, and therefore they have the the agit on their anxious as you would expect people who don't have those same kind of experiences. So stay calm. This too shall pass. There's plenty of opportunities once this war of attrition ends for the people that you know were able to endure and uh, thrive in the chaos. Well said. Gents, this is so much fun and educational. I appreciate it. And I uh, hope to see you guys all properly in the flesh next time. Take care, Tim. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On The Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.